0: Let everyone say amen. Amen. I'm grateful for the opportunity for us to once again come together where we can hear God speak to us. He can make his words very, very plain to yours and my heart. Amen. Now we know that the sun has set. Another Sabbath has gone into eternity. But brothers and sisters, just because the sun has set we must make sure that the son of righteousness, Jesus Christ, is still shining bright and beautiful within our hearts. Amen. And so it is that I know many of you, you do not have your lighting with you or what have you. So we're going to do the best that we can during this evening to go through the word of God. As we look at phase two of what we've been studying throughout this weekend thus far, we have been looking at not simply persecution without but tonight's message is persecution within. This is a very solemn message, brothers and sisters. It is not something that brings joy to my heart to share this with you. But at the same time, I know that God's ministers are commissioned to tell the people the truth because it's the truth that makes people free, amen? And so it is that my mission is not to lie to you because the scripture says no lie is of the truth. No lie is connected to Jesus. And therefore, it is not my desire to tell you lies, but I want to tell you the truth. And it's a most solemn truth indeed. And I pray that as we get ready to pray, that we will be able to hear the voice of God speaking to our hearts to help us understand how we can make sure that we remain persuaded over the fact that Christ can keep us all the way until the end. So before we do that, let us bow our heads for a word of prayer as we approach the throne of grace. Father in heaven, Lord, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share this message with your people. And Father, I know that this message has liberating power. But Lord, I know it also breaks your heart because what's being presented tonight was never your desire to be a reality. But Father, we know that you give us these words of inspiration that we might learn from them that we might be warned and that we might understand the times in which we live and that we know how to fight the good fight of faith. And so, dear God, we simply once again invite your presence in a marked manner, not simply within this campgrounds, but Father, within our hearts. We come to you as David, your servant, came to you, praying the same prayer he prayed when he said, Lord, open thou mine eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of thy law. Father, please hide me. Let not myself be seen in the midst of this presentation. May Jesus be lifted up. May we behold Christ our Savior. And as we behold him, by your grace, may we all become changed. For this is our prayer and our thanksgiving that we give. In the worthy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, let everyone say amen. Brothers and sisters, it's a reality. There will be many outside of the faith, many outside of God's church that will try to cause our minds to turn away from Jesus. And we saw that earlier today, the various methods that Satan uses through these outside influences. But there is a story in the Bible that told a very most marked point that I I thought to myself as a father. This is perfect to share with your people to really get this point across. And this story is found in the book of First Kings, the 13th chapter. And in First Kings, chapter 13, I want to read something to you. And I want you to consider the point that is being pressed here because God wants us to understand that there's another great danger. Just because you and I have had the victory by the grace of God over the outside influences of this world, when they are trying to distract us and cause us to fall away or fall aside, and turn away from God's truth. There is another point that God wants to bring out to us and is found in the book of first Kings, the 13th chapter. And the Bible says in first Kings, chapter 13, I'm going to start at verse one. It says, and behold, there came a man of God. What was he? A man, a man of God. It says, and behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense It says, and he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, oh, altar, altar. Thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. Notice what it says next now. Verse five. The altar also was rent and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man, unto the man of God, entreat now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord and the king's hand was what? Restored Restored him again and became as it was before. Now look at what happens here. Thus far. The man of God comes and he comes giving a prophetic utterance. The king, he did not like what he heard. So therefore the king tried to stop him. And when the king tried to stop him, all of a sudden his hand became messed up. He got so scared by this incident that the king now says, listen, please pray to your God, ask him to please help my hand turn back to its normal state. The man goes ahead and he decides to do it. Now, if you were the king, would you be happy or sad that your hand has been restored? You'd be happy, right? So here it is. The king's hand is now restored. Now, notice what the king says to the man of God in the next verse. In verse seven, it says, and the king said unto the man of God, come home with me. And refresh thyself and I will give thee a reward. Now, look at how the man of God responds. It says, and the man of God said unto the king, if thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. Now, why did he say that? Notice what it says in the next verse. Watch this now. Stay with me. It says, for so was it charged me by the what? By the word of the Lord saying, eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So why did the man refuse to go to the king's house? Was it because he didn't like the king? Was it because the king was a bad, wicked man? Why did he not go into the king's house? Because he was being obedient to the word of the Lord. He knew that the word of God came to him and gave him instruction. Do not stop. Do not go in this man's house. So therefore, this king, who was a wicked king. Here it is that the man says, I'm not going to go inside of your house because the word of the Lord told me not to. Now, notice what takes place next in the story. Going now to verse 10, it says, so he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Now. Watch the transition. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel. Watch this. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father and their father said unto them, what way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his son, saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass and he rode thereon. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, come home with me and eat bread. Now here goes. Remember, first the king was saying, come home with me, right? But now who's saying, come home with me? It's this old prophet. Now, notice what happens here. This is so deep. Look at what it says. Verse 16. And he said, I may not return with thee nor go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. Why? Verse 17. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord. Thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. So here it is that even though the old prophet has come his way. He still says, listen, I cannot come to you to your house because of the what word of the Lord. Amen. So this sounds like a real Bible believing Christian, doesn't it? Now notice what happens. Notice the next statement. It says next verse 18. He said unto him, what? I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house that he may eat bread and drink water. But read that next sentence with me. But he lied unto him. So here goes this situation. This man of God receives a word from the Lord. He goes and he does God's mission as he does God's work. Here it is. The king comes and the king says, listen, thank you for doing what you did. Please come to my house. Then the man says, no, I cannot because of the word of the Lord. Then this old prophet, which, by the way, was a false prophet. This old prophet, he now comes on the scene. He hears of what this man of God did. And then he says, listen, come to my house. But he says, but I can't come until the man said, but wait a minute. I'm a seven day Adventist just like you. He says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm not like some of those apostates. He says, I believe present truth, too. I also believe in the three angels messages. Don't worry about it. An angel spoke to me. Come to my house. And because this man decided to listen to this man rather than listen and regard the straight words of God. Notice what happens next. The Bible goes on to say, verse 19. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord and has not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and has eaten bread and drunk water in the place of the which the Lord did say to thee, eat no bread and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchre of thy fathers. And the scripture says, And it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled for him the ass to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a what? a lion met him by the way and slew him and his carcass was cast to the way and the ass stood by it. The lion also stood by the carcass brothers and sisters. There is truly a great danger of what takes place outside of God's church that has an influence upon you and I, but brothers and sisters, I promise you there's an even greater danger When we begin to mingle amongst those who name the name of the remnant. When we begin to simply trust individuals just because they have the same name you have. And what happens is many of us are like this man of God. That when we're dealing with the Jehovah's Witness, when we're dealing with the Mormon. When we're dealing with the evolutionists and all the other groups, oh, we immediately say, oh, no, I'm not going to follow you. That's ridiculous. But as soon as somebody begins to speak just simple little words of present truth, all of a sudden we say, oh, yes, I can trust almost anything. This person says. You see, inspiration tells us in First Selected Messages, page 122, it says there are persons in the church who are not converted. Did you know that there are persons in the church who are not converted, and who will not unite in earnest prevailing prayer. We must enter upon the work individually. We must pray more and talk less. Iniquity abounds and the people must be taught not to be satisfied with a form of godliness without the spirit and power. If we are intent upon searching our own hearts, putting away our sins, and correcting our evil tendencies, our souls will not be lifted up unto vanity. We shall be distrustful of ourselves, having an abiding sense that our sufficiency is of God. Listen to this next statement now. It says we have far more to fear from within. than from without. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you the truth. Some of the greatest challenges that has hit the remnant church of Bible prophecy is not what Barabbas was doing. But it was what those who were professing the very name of Jesus were doing right inside the movement. It says we have far more to fear from within than from without. The hindrances to strength and success are far greater from the church itself than from the world. Unbelievers have a right to expect. That those who profess to be keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus will do more than any other class to promote and honor by their consistent lives, by their godly example and their active influence, the cause which they represent. But how often have the professed advocates of the truth proved the greatest obstacle to its advancement? The unbelief indulged, the doubts expressed, the darkness cherished. Encourage the presence of evil angels and open the way for the accomplishment of Satan's devices. We're talking about persecution from within. While there are situations taking place, brothers and sisters, all throughout this world where there are those who do not believe our truth, do not upstand and lift up the messages of the three angels. Yes, it is true. There are going to be influences without that are going to try to keep us from standing upon the sure word of God. But brothers and sisters, Satan understands that the best way to take down his enemies is not to simply attack them from without. But Satan has an attitude that says, if I can't beat them, Then I will join them. And do you know that Jesus himself understood this? And this is why in Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus gave us a pictorial of it. Go to Matthew, the 13th chapter in Matthew, chapter 13. Jesus understood this point. You see, this ought not to surprise us. It should not surprise anybody that not everybody who says they are Israel are of Israel. In Romans nine, in verse six, Paul understood that he said, not all who say they are Israel are Israel. So it is that there are many today who are claiming that they believe in the Seventh-day Adventist message. But brothers and sisters, there are many who do not believe in our message. And Jesus understood this to the point that he gave us a little pictorial in the future of what was going to take place. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, this is how Jesus broke it down. It says in Matthew, the 13th chapter, and if you're there, let me know by saying amen. amen. It says in verse 24, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed what? Tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, what? An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn, Jesus already foresaw that there were going to be groups of men and women that was going to come into the church. And keep in mind that when it says here that it talks about the field, it is, it tells us in the scripture that the field represents the world. But I want you to listen to a quotation from Christ Object Lessons, page 70. And this is what it says. It says in Christ Object Lessons, page 70, talking about the tares, it says, The field, Christ said, is the world. But we must understand this as signifying the church of Christ in the world. The parable is a description of that which pertains to the kingdom of God, his work of salvation of men. And this work is accomplished through the church. So therefore, when it talks about this field that the enemy so tears into it, it's talking about the church in the world. The devil himself saw that the church of God. Jesus knew when he said in Matthew 16, remember, he said to Peter, remember, he asked the disciples, he said, listen, whom do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're a liar. Some say you're this and some say you're that. Jesus says, all right, fine. Tell me, who do you say that I am? Peter comes along. He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus responds and says, listen, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my heavenly father did. And Jesus says, and upon this rock, the rock that Peter was confessing Christ, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus was making these statements, brothers and sisters, do you understand the kind of trembling that it caused in the devil and his kingdom? He's saying, wait a minute, you're telling me that the gates of hell will not pre- be able to prevail against it. So therefore, Satan says, I'll take you on that challenge. And as a result of that, he began to raise up tares and he began to send them into the church. And so it is that it should not be mysterious to you and I when we run into individuals who are more about tearing down God's truth rather than building it up. The Bible already showed us that this was going to happen. And there's no need for alarm, brothers and sisters, because typically when a message like this is given, people begin to get nervous. They begin to say, uh oh, is he trying to say to call me out of the church? There's no way that you can call somebody out of the church if you faithfully study the prophecy. It tells us very clearly that the field represents the church in the world and that the wheat and the tares are going to be in the church. So therefore, this ideology that the church constitutes the faithful souls, oh, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry. That's a misinterpretation of Acts of the Apostles, page 11. If the church only constituted faithful souls, how in the world could tares be in the church? There's a way that we interpret scripture that can be deadly and dangerous. God has a church, brothers and sisters. And this church, though it is militant and there is a lot of fighting going on. Eventually, by the grace of God, this same church will go from being church militant to church triumphant. But we are told that tares were put in and they were planted by the enemy. By the way, did you notice that tares can be identified? Sometimes we put words in Jesus' mouth that even Jesus never said. Jesus never said that tares can't be identified. He just said, do not uproot them. But the same way that those workers, they said, master, we sowed wheat, but now we see tares. So it is that we can identify tares today, brothers and sisters. But Jesus simply says, don't uproot them too quickly. Don't uproot them. Identify them. Recognize their work and counter it according to my principles. But the Bible makes it clear that in God's church, there are going to be tears and their mission is to tear down, to choke, to starve the truth, to starve the progress of the message. And to keep the people back and to cause them to no longer be persuaded. And so it is that we are told that tears are going to come in. In fact, notice what the Bible says in Acts, the 20th chapter in Acts, chapter 20. It wasn't just Jesus that knew this. It was Jesus's faithful disciples that knew this as well. The Bible says in Acts, the 20th chapter, notice what the Bible says. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. In Acts, chapter 20, notice what the Bible says in verse 28. Acts 20 and verse 28. Here's what the Bible says. It says, take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, brothers and sisters, Peter was speaking with authority. He says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. It was deeply moving upon the hearts of God's servants. Eventually, grievous wolves shall come. Brothers and sisters, do you think when you leave this high mountaintop experience, do you not understand that you're going to run into some wolves? You are going to run into some different situations and scenarios. You're going to run into different people, brothers and sisters, that are going to be like wolves in sheep's clothing. It's interesting. Even when Jesus, when he first gathered the disciples together, I've learned that I do this with all the baptismal candidates. Anytime we were just in just in New York a few weeks ago and we did a and we did a, a evangelistic meeting out there. And there were about maybe, let's say, nine, 10 individuals who decided to give their hearts to Jesus and get baptized. Well, as we were baptizing these individuals, I gave the final address and I followed in the footsteps of my master. In Matthew chapter 10, as soon as Jesus gathered the disciples together, do you know one of the first counsels Jesus gave to those disciples? He said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. It was one of the very first things on the onslaught that he began to make them aware of. And I began to share with those individuals. I said, not everybody who says they're SDA are SDA. Not everybody who claims to be part of God's truth are part of God's truth. There are tears, brothers and sisters, in the midst. And their mission and their job is to tear down. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus had two types of individuals that he had to deal with on a regular basis. And these two individuals had tear like qualities. And I want to show you these two individuals so that we can identify. Because remember, tears, though they're not to be uprooted, they are to be what? Identify. So there it is. I want us to see if we can identify some tears tonight. And I want you to see something that the Bible says. I want you to notice what the Bible says. First and foremost, there were two groups that were normal persecutors of Jesus Christ. These two groups were called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in these two groups, they both had character qualities of tares, because remember, a tear is a weed. That's what the word tear means. It means a weed. And the same thing that a weed does, it chokes the life out of the plant so that it cannot grow and flourish. So it is that they tried to choke and snuff out the life of Jesus. And these Pharisees and these Sadducees, in fact, these two groups who hated each other. The one thing they both knew is that they hated Jesus. So therefore, hatred brought them together to crucify the Messiah. And here it is that I want you to see something here. It is that. When we're talking about Pharisees, I want us to do some identifying points. Let's find out some things about Pharisees. Let's go to the book of Philippians chapter three, because we need to find out who would constitute the modern day 2010 Pharisees. The Bible says in Philippians chapter three. And when you get there, let me know by saying amen. In Philippians, the third chapter, we get an idea now because brothers and sisters, there are Pharisees today. Make no mistake about that. The Bible says in Philippians, the third chapter, notice what it says in verse five. Paul was one who was making it known that he himself was a Pharisee. And I want you to see how he described himself, because once we see this description, we can get a pretty good idea of what constitutes a modern day Pharisee. Here it is in Philippians chapter three. Let's start at verse one. It says, finally, my brethren rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, it's not grievous, but for you, it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Verse 5 Circumcised the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of Hebrews as touching the what as touching the law, a Pharisee. So what do we learn about Pharisees? According to the verse. Pharisees profess to be law keeping people. He says as touching the law, a what Pharisee. So therefore, he says, I am a Pharisee because as touching the law, blameless, I follow it to a T. So when we look at Pharisees, these are individuals who are sticklers for the law. These are individuals who make sure that they dot every I and cross every T. They follow every single detailed point. But notice something here in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. Notice another point that magnifies these Pharisees. Go to Matthew, the 23rd chapter in Matthew, chapter 23. Let's notice what the Bible says. Matthew, the 23rd chapter. And when you get there, let me know by saying amen. In Matthew 23, Jesus now begins to expound a little further into this concept of what constitutes a Pharisee. And in Matthew 23, notice what it says next now. It says in Matthew 23, verses 1 to 6, it says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the who? And the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their what? Works for they say and do not. What did we just learn about Pharisees? They're hypocrites. They go around lifting up a law and they talk about how they're trying to follow the Bible and spirit of prophecy to a T. But the truth of the matter is, is that they themselves will speak a word that they themselves are not living. Mm -hmm. Let's go a little further. It goes on to say next now, verse four, it says, for they bind what kind of burdens? Heavy burdens, brothers and sisters, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Isn't that something? It says, but all their works they do for to be seen of men have mercy. Brothers and sisters, we're identifying modern day Pharisees. It says they do their works so that they can be recognized that they can develop a group of followers, that they can get a whole bunch of people to lift them up and that they may follow them and do as they lead and they become a great leader. It says in verse six, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. Now, in looking at this, we already begin to see some things about Pharisees that we should start being able to connect the dots as far as what constitutes a modern day Pharisee. But I want to show you one more thing, Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, we're going to look at one more thing. In Matthew, the 15th chapter, bringing it out again, because here's some things that they do today, brothers and sisters, that you and I need to understand. In Matthew, the 15th chapter, we get another picture now. In Matthew 15, in verse one, notice what the Bible says. If you're there, let me know by saying amen. amen. In Matthew 15, one, it says, then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands with wet" When they eat bread, but he answered and said unto them, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your what? Traditions. Traditions. It says, for God commanded, saying, honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, whomsoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me and honor not his father or his mother. He shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Today, there are many individuals in the church, those who name the name of Christ, those who name the name of the remnant, the seven day Adventist church. There are people today, brothers and sisters. That are trying to make it sound like everything that they do is according to the Bible and spirit of prophecy. But number one, they begin to do things and to profess things and to teach things that they themselves are not even practicing. Another thing that they do is they begin to add to the words of God. They begin to take little traditions, little things that they have a niche for, and they begin to hold on to it and they begin to add it to their understanding of Bible and spirit of prophecy. And as they do this, they begin to even make it a point that if you don't follow as they are following the interpretations, you're an apostate. You see, in Proverbs chapter six, verses 16 through 19, the Bible says there are six things that the Lord doth hate. Yea, seven in verse 19. It tells us the seventh one. And it says the thing that God hates. Number seven is he says those who sow the seed of discord amongst the brethren. Jesus said, this is how they shall know that you are my disciples when you have loved one for another. But many of these Pharisees today, what they're doing is they're finding any little niche, any little thing they can to create segregation amongst the people of God. They begin to use things and they begin to even sometimes use charts. And they begin to say things like if you do not acknowledge these charts like how we acknowledge them, you're not a true seven day Adventist. You don't see the light like how we see it. You see, brothers and sisters, there are people who are allowing things, quite honestly, that do not even exist to cause a segregation amongst the people of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not going to speak in parables anymore. I'm going to talk to you straight. Listen to me. There are individuals today who will take a statement, not even a statement, a figure that was on William Miller's chart. And they will begin to use that figure. As a means of saying, if you do not believe in this number called the 2520, if you don't believe in this 2520 prophecy that took place, you are an apostate. Did you know that there are certain individuals like that? I remember there was one man. He sent an email to a good evangelist friend of mine, and he literally made it sound like the general conference of seven day Adventists because they do not acknowledge the 2520. They are not truly standing upon the principles of truth. Modern day Pharisee. Now, listen to this. What disturbs me about this, brothers and sisters, is that number one, do you know there are seven day Adventists today that still go around talking about this? There's a two thousand five hundred twenty year prophecy. And you know what's so disappointing? We have really fallen away from the truth that God has given to us as a people. You want to know why? Because, brothers and sisters, we were taught how to study the Bible. The spirit of God leads us line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Amen? Amen. That's a that's a method that the spirit of God uses to study the Bible. But do you know what most people did? They took a chart with a number on it. And then they took an abstract quotation from the spirit of prophecy where Ellen White spoke highly of the chart and that nothing should be altered on it. But they did not finish the statement. She said nothing should be altered on it except by inspiration. Hmm. In other words, if inspiration says something on this chart was wrong, then it has and they have an authority to remove it. And people forgot about that. So you know what they did? They started going around talking about a 25-20. They started allowing groups and camps to come together and it became an instrument that the devil used to create a segregation amongst the people of God. In a time where 71 times in the spirit of prophecy, we are told to press together, press together, press together. There are individuals that are trying to separate, separate, separate over something that doesn't even exist. You say, preacher, what do you mean? I'll tell you exactly what I mean. You know, brothers and sisters, if we faithfully studied Leviticus, the 26th chapter, which is where this so-called 2520 prophecy came into existence, we would find that there is no 2520 prophecy. And that's all we would need to do. But we didn't do it that way. We failed. We began to listen to what other people were saying about a chart and an abstract quote. And as a result of that, we failed. Notice these points right here. Number one, correct me if I'm wrong. Two, five, two, zero or two, three, zero, zero. Which one is longer? Two, Two, five, two, zero. Right. A child can understand that. Right. Now, why is it that if two, five, two, zero is a longer time period? Why is it that in last day events, page thirty six, paragraph one, the prophet of God says that the twenty three hundred day prophecy is the longest time prophecy in the Bible? I mean, how simple is that? Are you saying that the prophet suddenly had a mathematical challenge in her mind? A child can understand two, five, two, zero is more than two, three, zero, zero. But the prophet of God under inspiration said the longest prophecy in the Bible is the 2300 days. That should have settled it right there. But because individuals are holding on to ignorance, brothers and sisters, God had to magnify it even further. Early writings, page 63. We're told there are many precious truths contained in the word of God. But what the flock needs now is present truth. She says, I saw the danger that God's messengers will begin to veer off from the points of present truth to begin to focus on things that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. She then decided in the next paragraph, she said what present truth was. She said the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. It said nothing about 2520. She said the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. She says the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. She said these are perfectly calculated to unite the flock sanctify the soul and show us the glorious future of the advent movement not, no, not one thing mentioned in the 2520 if that's not enough do you know there was an 1843 chart now I want you to imagine this can you imagine that someone says oh well the prophet was telling us that the 1843 chart in nothing should be altered right no. so therefore inspiration was saying nothing should be altered on the chart but watch this if that were true then do you know that we have a prophet and a group of pioneers who violated the very command of God You want to know why? In 1843, there was a chart by William Miller where it had 2520 on it. In 1850, there was another chart that had the 2520 on it. Ah, but in 1863, there was another chart. And guess what? No 2520 on it. There was no 2520 on the chart in 1863. Neither the charts to come thereafter. No 2520. And if that is not enough, I leave the best for last. A quotation from Review and Herald. January 26, 1864. The pioneers came together. Now, keep in mind, this is James White himself. Now, James White, the husband of the prophet. Now, brothers and sisters, if you know Adventist history, you will know that there were certain things that James White taught that Ellen White did not agree with. And Ellen White had to check him. She had to let him know, no, this is not right. The Lord has shown me otherwise. And she was being faithful because in Ephesians four verses 11 to 14, one of the functions of a prophet is to make sure that the brethren are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Now, here it is that the husband to the prophet makes a statement like this. Listen to this. This was in Review and Herald, January 26, 1864. And I want you to listen what they said on the study of the 2520. It says, so then this was their conclusion. They studied Leviticus 26. This was their conclusion. I'm reading. It says, so then there is no prophetic period in Leviticus 26. How clear is this, brothers and sisters? Do you understand that we have hundreds, possibly thousands who have allowed themselves to be broken away from the people of God over something that doesn't exist? It says, so then there is no prophetic period in Leviticus 26. And those who imagine that such a thing exists and are puzzling themselves over the adjustments of its several dates are simply beating the air. It says to ignore or treat with neglect a prophetic period when one is plainly given is censurable in the extreme. It is an equally futile, though not so heinous, a course to endeavor to create one where none exists. Hmm. The twenty five, twenty brothers and sisters is not even a real prophecy. And yet we have individuals teaching this, not only teaching this, but we have individuals who are teaching it and using it. As a catalyst to begin to tell us that in 9-11, supposedly that uh, according to a reinterpretation of the trumpets, that now in 9-11, supposedly this is when the loud cry started and they misunderstand life sketches, page 411. They never connected it to volume seven of the testimonies, page 141. They never did line upon line. The same Holy Spirit who inspired the writings of the Bible is the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writings of Ellen White. So therefore, the same method that the Holy Spirit uses to study the Bible is the same method that we should use to study the spirit of prophecy. And so it is that when you study the spirit of prophecy, you should study what? Line upon line. And here it is that what they did was they looked at Life Sketches page 411 and they said, oh, yeah, look at that. See, it shows it's talking about the towers going down. And then it says the Lord will shake terribly the earth. And then Revelation 18, one to three shall come to pass. And therefore, they say, well, 9-11 took place. The towers went down. So therefore, Revelation 18 must come to pass because God shook terribly the earth. And therefore, they began giving the loud cry. So today we have people teaching a doctrine that the loud cry started at 9-11. They did not compare it to volume seven of the testimonies to the church, page 141, where the prophet of God makes it very clear that she says it is at the passing of the national Sunday law. That she shows that when the passing of the Sunday law takes place, she says, then God will shake terribly the earth. They didn't study line upon line. There are modern day Pharisees. There are individuals, brothers and sisters, who are taking the words of God. They are claiming to be sticklers to the truth. They are claiming to follow the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, totally faithful. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, they are fading away from Bible truth and they don't even realize it. There are others today, modern day Pharisees, those who say that they're following the Bible and spirit of prophecy. And therefore, they begin to see the apostasy in the church. They see the apostasy in the church. They begin to say, oh, look at God's church. Look at how messed up it is. You know what we need to do? We can't worship here anymore. So you know what we need to do? We need to come out. We need to start up another church. And what we're going to do is, and do you know, I talked with some individuals that actually used the words. They said, we're going to form a more pure, holier worship. They didn't even realize that they were fulfilling prophecy. You know why? First Selected Messages, page 179. The prophet of God says there will be those who will talk about the testimonies and the close of probation. And she says that these individuals, they will come along and talk about the need to come out of God's church to form a more purer, holier group of people. She says this is what Satan wants. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus was trying to teach us in John chapter nine and chapter 10 when that man was born blind and Jesus came and he healed that man. Here it is that the Pharisees were so upset that they actually kicked him out of the church. And here it is that when that happened, Jesus came to him and he made it clear to him. He said, listen, he says, even though they have forsaken you, he says, listen, you're still with me. You are still accepted. Do you believe that the son of God is who he is? Yes, I do. He said, I came that I might help those who are blind to see and those who can see shall remain blind. The Pharisees responded, are you saying that we're blind? Jesus says, well, since you claim to see and you don't see this, then I guess you are blind. Then thereafter, Christ begins to tell a most beautiful statement in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he made a great polarization between a shepherd and a hireling. He says that I am the good shepherd. He says, and I love the sheep. He says, but a hireling, He says when a hireling sees the wolf coming. In other words, when the hireling sees the apostasy coming. He said that when the hireling sees the wolf coming, he says the hireling leaves the sheep. The hireling leaves the sheep, goes to a place of safety and leaves the precious sheep to be scattered. Jesus said the hireling does this. Because he's a hireling and he does not love the sheep. He says, but I am the good shepherd. And he says, and I am willing to lay down my life for the sheep. There are two easy things to do, brothers and sisters, when you see apostasy in the church. One easy thing to do is to leave and let the sheep be scattered so you can form your own pure holier group when there's apostasy in there just as well. Mm. Amen. The second thing that's easy to do is to sit back and watch the brethren get leavened by apostasy. And you sit back and do and say nothing and you say, oh, well, God will fix this someday. Inspiration says that that's that's worse than a crime to sit back and to watch apostasy leaven the brethren. The hardest thing to do is to stand up in the midst of the apostasy to understand that I could get hit by the crossfire at any moment. Lose my ministry, Amen. lose my job, lose my influence. Mm. But the love of Christ needs to compel us. There's right. too many politically correct ministries out here. Mm. There's too many individuals that are trying to play safe and not to step on anybody's toes. Brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we need to be rude and brash and ungodly. There's never a place for that. That's right. But how in the world can you watch the sheep literally get their throat cut? And not say anything because you're scared of what somebody's going to say. Mm -hmm. We need the love of the shepherd. I'm serious. We need the love of the shepherd. Because if we don't have the love of the shepherd, we're going to fall in one of two extremes. Either we're going to leave the church and we're going to go ahead and try to form some other group. Or we're going to stay in and just become neutral and laid back and just say, oh, well, one day God will fix it. There are many ways that we can understand these modern day Pharisees, these religious zealots, these individuals who claim that they're following the Bible and the spirit of prophecy to a T. But at the same time, they're turning away from the truth and they don't even realize it. There are modern day Pharisees. But you know what? It wasn't just Pharisees. It was also Sadducees. Is that right? I believe we need a Bible definition of who a a, a Sadducee is, don't you? We found out who a Pharisee is, right? We can understand it a little better. We can understand that these are those who are claiming to stick to all the truths, but what they will do. And that's another thing that amazes me. Nine times out of 10, the very same individuals who are preaching a high and holy standard from up front. They dare not live it in their homes. Do not be like the Pharisees, Jesus said, for they say and they do not. Brothers and sisters, my wife and I, we had to study this thing out. We had to learn if we're going to try to speak to God's people, we have to make sure that the truths we're speaking must first have hit our own hearts in our home. So often the power of the gospel has been neutralized, not by the wonderful articulate speaker, but by what is seen as it relates to their home. The behavior of their children, the attitude of wife or husband, and the list goes on. Our homes, brothers and sisters, need to reflect these same high and holy truths that we are giving from up front. If we do not do this, we are worse than an apostate. There's a reason why, while one finger points straight ahead, there are three more pointing right back at us. God says you're not even following your own counsels. If the truth be told, the same individuals who are claiming that the church is in apostasy, if you look at most of their homes today, they themselves are in apostasy. We got to make sure that we live the message that we preach. Amen. Now, what does the Bible show us about modern day Sadducees? How would we identify them? Let's notice what the Bible says in Acts 23. We're winding down, Acts 23. And in Acts the 23rd chapter, we get a picture now of a modern day Sadducee. We got a clearer picture and there were many applications that we could have applied to the modern day Pharisee, but we used just a few. But now I want us to look at the modern day Sadducee. In Acts the 23rd chapter, when you get there, let me know by saying amen. It says that the Sadducees, notice what it says in Acts 23, starting at verse 1, and then we'll take it to verse 8. It says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the rule of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were what? Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a decision or a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. Read verse 8 with me for those who can. It says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. Neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. You see, the Sadducees, they also represented part of the church, but the Pharisees did not hold to the truths that was given to the church. Did you catch that? The Pharisees, they were part of God's church, but the, or rather the Sadducees, they were part of God's church, but they did not hold to all the truths that was given to God's church. The Sadducees were individuals who began to say, yes, I'm part of God's church, but I don't believe in those three angels' messages. I don't believe in victory over sin. I don't believe in present truth. They think that present truth is some type of location of a building in California. No, brothers and sisters, the Bible says in Second Peter one twelve, that present truth is the experience of victory over sin while we climb the ladder of grace. Amen. Oh, good. Present truth is a biblical term. It's not limited to a ministry in a specific location. People have suddenly become scared of using the word present truth because they're afraid it always connects them to some ministry. Brothers and sisters, present truth is biblical. Would you deny the words of God? Mm. I believe in present truth. I'm preaching present truth by the grace of God. And you should, too. Sadducees, they don't want to be bothered with it. You see, the Sadducees are those today, brothers and sisters, that every time you seem to try to share with them God's truth as it relates to victory over sin. When you begin to share the various reforms, you talk about health reform. You talk about dress reform. You talk about the need for medical missionary work. These individuals, yes, they name the name of SDA, but they will not dare follow these truths. They prefer to keep a high theoretical understanding of the truth while they neglect the practical application of the truth that reforms their lives. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand there is no revival if there is no reform. We can leave this mountaintop and say, oh, I've been revived all you want. If your life has not changed, you was just you was just experiencing excitement. You was just experiencing some type of electrical feeling in your back. But you were not revived because true revival always brings out true reformation of your life. The reformation testifies to the revival. And there are individuals today, brothers and sisters, that they want to talk a high and holy standard of gospel truth, but they will not let their lives be reformed. While the Pharisees on one side, they try to make the reform something that constitutes righteousness. The Sadducees feel like I can be righteous without being reformed. And when you study great controversy carefully, 571, it tells us very clearly that this was the secret of the papacy's power to get people to believe either their works make them righteous or that they can sin and be righteous anyhow. And today we have modern day Pharisees and modern day Sadducees. We have individuals. This is why, brothers and sisters, today, when you meet an individual who says, I don't believe in the sanctuary truth. I don't believe that there is a sanctuary in heaven like we remember in 1980. When we saw Desmond Ford and he turned his back on all these truths and had several ministers follow after him. And there are people today who are still echoing those devilish lies. Mm. Brothers and sisters, you just identified a tear. When you meet these individuals who will go around saying my health has nothing to do with my salvation. You ever heard people say that? Brothers and sisters, let me make, make let me make something very plain. The food that you eat gets broken down into blood. And that blood is what has to circulate throughout the body to provide all of the different things that the body needs, especially the brain, which houses the mind. And therefore, if I eat food that is debilitated, fevered, and diseased, then it's going to give me debilitated, fevered, and diseased blood. And if my blood is debilitated, fevered and diseased, then when that blood feeds my brain, it's going to put my brain in an enfeebled, debilitated and diseased condition. And if my brain is in an enfeebled, debilitated, diseased condition, then my mind will not be able to really identify present truth. This is why Councils on Diets and Foods, page 54, the prophet of God says those who indulge in appetite can never understand present truth. Therefore, if I eat food that is healthy, nourishing and vibrant, then what will happen is it'll make my blood become healthy, nourishing and vibrant. And if my blood is healthy, nourishing and vibrant, then it'll cause my brain to become healthy, nourishing and vibrant. And if my brain is healthy, nourishing and vibrant, then my mind, when present truth is downloaded from the most holy place, then my mind is now in a condition that I can receive this truth and apply it in my life and share it with others. This is why Paul says in Romans 7, verse 25, he says, we serve the law of God with our mind. And people have the nerve to say your health has nothing to do with your salvation. You know, when you often think about the sins of Sodom, when you think about the sins of Sodom, everybody loves to go to all that bestiality, homosexuality and all that stuff. But do you know what was number two on their list? Go to the book of Ezekiel 16. People talk about health has nothing to do with my salvation. That's because we're not studying the Bible. Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel, the 16th chapter. And I love how the Bible calls it, calls it iniquity. You know what iniquity is? It's not just a bad thing you did. Iniquity is premeditated sin. You know it's wrong, but you're going to do it anyhow. And here's what the Bible says in Ezekiel 16. Notice what the Bible says in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Here's what it says. It says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. What's the first thing on the list? Pride. What's the next thing? Fullness of bread. Stop right there. What does fullness of bread mean? Gluttony. What's gluttony? Overeating. You mean to tell me that the Bible calls overeating iniquity? God makes it clear, brothers and sisters. Remember, Sodom was destroyed. Sodom was destroyed because of their practice of iniquity. And the Bible says that overeating is an iniquity. And there are Sadducees today that are going around saying this health reform message. Think about it. When the children of Israel was delivered in Exodus 15... In Exodus 16, the first thing God did was change their diet. You think that was ironic? It says in Councils on Diets and Foods, page 374, it says God changed their diet and gave them the food best adapted to prepare their minds on what they were about to receive on Mount Sinai. So therefore, God saw the need to change their diet. As soon as they came out of Egypt, the first thing God did was change the diet. As soon as the seven day Adventist church was organized in 1863, here comes the month of June, 1863. And God gives us the health reform message. Amen. We're modern day Israel. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. Amen. There are people who say, what in the world does health reform have to do with the third angel's message? It has everything to do with it. The Bible says here is the what of the saints. Here is the patience of the saints. So, therefore, these saints that keep the commandments of God and also have the faith of Jesus, the Bible describes them as patient. But the Bible also says that God is a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14 33, and 40. And the order of God in 2 Peter 1 is he says, first comes virtue, then comes knowledge, then comes temperance, then comes patience. So what is it that comes first, temperance or patience? So therefore, an intemperate man can never be a patient saint. That's all that Ellen White said in Councils on Diets and Foods, page 50. She said an intemperate man can never be a patient man. And people have the nerve to say health reform has nothing to do with your salvation. I'm amazed. But that's the work of Sadducees. They take away all these truths. People say my dress has nothing to do with my my walk with God. Sadducees, brothers and sisters. All the truths that have been given to us and they turn away from it, but they still think they can walk with Jesus. We have been told that our dress testifies of the connection that we have between us and Christ. And dress reform is a topic that seems to be so taboo. We don't even hear most present truth ministers preaching on it. Why? I don't know. It's a truth that's been given to us like anything else. It always gets quiet when we talk about dress. Ain't that something? Brothers and sisters, understand your body represents the temple of God. Amen? Amen. Your body represents the temple of God. Now, what part The the, the, the sanctuary, it had two apartments. Is that right? Amen. What were they called? Holy, holy, holy place. Holy and what holy. else? Most holy. most holy place. Which part of your body do you believe represents the sanctuary? Holy or most holy? Most holy. I would say most holy. You want to know why? What was in the most holy place? Ark the, the Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. What did God say he was going to do with your mind? He says, I'm going to write my laws in your mind. Is that right? Then we were told that the Shekinah glory, which was the very presence of God, was also in the most holy place. Is that right? And then God also said, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost in which I dwell in you. Is that right? So therefore, we can look at our bodies, brothers and sisters, and we can see that it is very typical of the most holy place of the sanctuary. Now, if the common man were to see any particular in the most holy place, what would happen to him? He would die. Now, brothers and sisters, what that tells us then, especially ladies. The common man on the street has no right to see what your most holy place looks like. The common man on the street should not know what the particulars of your body, your precious temples look like. It was not designed for the common man. And you know what it has brought forth? It has brought forth death because that's why we have so much AIDS. That's why we have so much venereal diseases. This is why we have homicides where individuals are killing one another over some woman or some man. And all of these other issues, it is starts, brothers and sisters, because there are many who are revealing the most holy place to a group of people that should not have seen it. But watch this now. Who was allowed in the most holy place? The high priest. So was the common priest allowed in the most holy place? No, he is not. Now, brothers and sisters, do you remember first Peter two nine? It says we are a royal priesthood. Sisters, don't you understand that not even the common Seventh-day Adventist brother has a right to see inside of your most holy place? The common priest in the church has no right to see what your most holy place looks like. And they are sisters today that are allowing the various particulars and curvatures of their body to be seen by the naked eye of any man. And God says, no, you're not supposed to do that because your body is a temple and you were supposed to cover it until the priest in the church begins to court you, ask your hand in marriage. And at that point, when you say I do, that common priest has now graduated to becoming a high priest. And that's the only person that has a right to look into the most holy place. (laughs) The only person. We need some serious education on dress reform. But the Sadducees say, my dress has nothing to do with it. You see, it's unbalanced in both areas, brothers and sisters. Your dress, your diet, country living. Amen. 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 All of these are truths that God has given to us that we should have been practicing them. But the problem is, is that you can't do this and think because I've done it, therefore I am righteous. That's the Deception. You cannot say I don't need to do this because I have Christ's righteousness as a covering. That's a deception. When you're connected to the vine, the natural fruit that grows from it should be a reformation of your life. And you are going to change a dress. You are going to change your diet, but it's not going to be based on a I got to. It's going to be based on a I get to. I get to glorify God by the way I dress. I get to glorify God by the way that I eat and take care of this body which is his temple that he desires to work in me and through me for his glory. I get to serve him and put myself and my family out of the wicked cities and into the blessed country places where I can learn more about the character of Jesus and how my children can. Brothers and sisters, when I got out of the city and moved into the country, you couldn't pay me enough money to move back into the city. Once I saw what it did for my children, I have four children. Their stair step ages 12, 11, 10, 9. What I have seen take place in their lives, the changes. We were born and raised in New York City, the concrete jungle of New York. All I've ever known was New York City. And I'm telling you, live New York lifestyle, had a lot of that stuff to get out of me. But I'm telling you, when we got out there into the country places, I was able to see God work and he mostly ministered to me through my children. It's the same thing that happened to Enoch. When Enoch had a baby, he became even more confirmed than God. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you what I've seen. All of these things that God has given to us are blessings. I get to do this. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.